0: Let me pray. Uh, Steve's handing out the, the handouts, and um, this will be the, the fifth class. I'll explain what we're doing, how we're moving forward in our series. Let me uh, let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word and the gift that your revelation is to us. Uh, what a precious treasure that we get to have, um, and you've given us faithful men who trained us to to handle your word to love your word i pray that as we uh again hash out some more details about what it means to counsel in light of your glory that you would uh, strengthen our minds to grasp these concepts help me to be clear and we pray that grace bible church would be strengthened as a result we pray in christ's name amen Right, so this is uh, installment five of Doxological Counseling, and over the next two weeks, we'll be talking about uh, what I'm calling sanctification sincerity, sanctification sincerity, um, and this is it'll be the first of two parts. When is change worship? When is change worship? When does it qualify as worship? The organization Alcoholics Anonymous, you're probably no stranger to that name. This uh, organization has been around since 1939, and they've published four editions of their Alcoholics Anonymous manual, kind of functions as something like their Bible in that organization. The uh, 1955 edition, which was the second edition, boasted of 6,000 groups and members exceeding far above 150,000 recovering alcoholics. And then about 20 years later, when they published the third edition in 1976, these numbers had grown to more than 1 million members with almost 28,000 groups that met in over 90 countries worldwide. And the final edition that was published in November 2001 records that their membership had just about doubled since 1976 to an estimated 2 million people and 100,800 groups meeting in approximately 150 different countries around the world. These are some staggering numbers and you just see the growth over the past about 80 years or so in that organization. And the increase in those numbers uh, has to do with the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous does actually help people change. That might be a a shocking claim to you, but it it does. The organization actually does help people change. But the change that Alcoholics Anonymous and organizations like them help to accomplish in people's lives is not the kind of change that honors God. Um, They encourage people to... uh, come up with or adhere to a God of their own understanding. That is not the type of change that honors God, and so that's not the type of change that we're after. All change is not equal change. All change is not God-approved change. In other words, just because people are changing, maybe even putting off bad behaviors or habits for more practically beneficial practices... That does not mean that God is pleased by whatever change is happening. All change in a person's life is not change that automatically gets God's stamp of approval. And that's the case specifically because all change doesn't aim at the glory of God. God is aiming at his glory. And so any change that God approves and is pleased by is change that terminates in his glory so because we're called to be Christians or as Christians we're called to be zealously pursuing God's glory just as God himself does we are after a specific kind of change not change for the sake of change or just making practically helpful uh, differences in our lives but we're after a change that results in the praise and glory of God Change that makes us better worshipers of God. People who believe what God has said and respond rightly in obedience and thanks and adoration and love to the God revealed in the Bible. And so over the next two weeks, what I want to do is help us to just flesh out that type of change. This week we'll look at four conditions that must be present in worshipful God honoring change. And then next week, we'll look at practically how to get at the heart and actually move the heart to better worship God. And we'll try and flesh that out in, a, in some practical ways. And so today, worshipful God-honoring change occurs when at least four conditions are present. That's what we'll see. That's what you have there on your outline. Worshipful God-honoring change occurs when at least four conditions are present. This isn't an exhaustive Obviously, but these are necessary. It can't be less than these if worshipful God-honoring change is gonna take place. And so those four things that we'll look at today are these four conditions. Number one, when God's glory is the ultimate goal of change, worshipful God-honoring change takes place. When faith is the primary means of change, when sin is the chief enemy of change, and when the heart is the principal object of change, all of these things must be present if we are to change in such a way that honors God and results in worship of him. None of these conditions that we'll discuss today are goals in false counseling systems. No other systems except biblical Christianity would adopt these conditions as the basis by which people must change. So pursuing God's glory as the ultimate end, believing what God has objectively revealed in scripture, killing sin as God defines it, and then doing all of that at the heart level so that the actual inner person experiences permanent comprehensive change. No false counseling system has these things, and so this really helps distinguish what's biblical Christianity and a biblical plan for sanctification from all other counseling systems. That cleared everybody where we're going? Cool. All right. So, the first condition when God's glory is the ultimate goal of change, this is the first condition that must be present if we are to call change worship, change that honors God. God's glory must be the ultimate goal of change. You've got some passages there. We won't look at all of the passages as I kind of move through the outline. But what we mean by this is to pursue change for some other reason, ultimately, other than the glory of God, is not honoring to God. Even if we're trying to put off sin and put on Christ-like behaviors and attitudes. If we're striving to do that for some other purpose that is not God's glory primarily, then we're not worshiping God in our sanctification. We're actually worshiping something else. Whatever purpose for which we change ultimately, that purpose or person is our functional God. Whatever purpose for which we change ultimately, that purpose or if it's a person, that is our functional God, even if we claim to worship Christ. For example, if a husband starts becoming a better husband, Because his wife threatened to divorce him and he just can't stand the thought of losing his wife because it would be so embarrassing to have to live as a divorced man, right? His reputation is on the line with his family, his friends, and other people. If he's changing to become a better husband so that he can hold on to a wife to save his reputation and not be embarrassed, then what's he worshiping? Even if he follows biblical instructions, say he goes to Ephesians 5 and he says, okay, I have to love my wife like Christ loved the church. How did he do that? He sacrificed. He gave himself for her. I'm going to start sacrificing for my wife. If the reason ultimately he's doing that is to save face in front of his parents or family, then he's not worshiping God. He's worshiping his reputation. His reputation is what he's primarily concerned about. And so that is not God-honoring change, even though he could be following very biblical, practical steps in becoming a, a better husband. If the goal isn't right, then it's not worship. Same thing, if a single person desires marriage ultimately for the sake of companionship or children or intimacy, then God's not honored by their desire for marriage, right? marriage is good says Ephesians 5 companionship is good Genesis 2 reveals children are a gift from the Lord Psalm 127 says intimacy is a gift from God Proverbs 5 and 1 Corinthians 7 say but if the single person doesn't desire those things for the very reason that God created them then the single person is not on God's same agenda therefore that change whatever change they might implement cannot be considered honoring to God in those desires and so this first condition must be present. God's glory must be the ultimate goal of change. And this actually even informs uh, how, we, how we think about sin, right? How we think about um, putting off sin. Uh, this singular pursuit of God's glory should even shape the way we think about the things that are hindering us from changing, Right, sin in our lives. I love what Ralph Vinning says in "The Sinfulness of Sin." He says the sinfulness of sin not only appears from but consists in this: that it is contrary to God. That's what makes sin sinful. If sin was not contrary to God, even if it hurt people, for example, it wouldn't be sin what makes sin evil what makes sin sinful is that it is against god he goes on to say here then is the desperately wicked nature of sin that is that it is high treason against the majesty of god as god is holy all holy only holy altogether holy and always holy so sin is sinful all sinful only sinful altogether sinful and always sinful Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love, the upbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise, the reproach of his wisdom. Sin is sin because God is God. And so sin is sinful because it is against God. I have, after each of these sections in your notes, some suggestions for how to get at these goals and counseling. So asking questions, for example, the first four you see, what grieves you most about this sin? Just because someone is grieved about their sin doesn't mean they're grieved for the right reasons. Judas felt terrible about handing over Jesus to be, to be crucified, didn't he? It wasn't a repentant grief. He wasn't, re- he wasn't repentant. He wasn't grieved for God-honoring reasons, which is why his grief led to death rather than the sorrow that produces repentance. And so what grieves you most about this sin is a fair question in counseling. What do you, most, what do you want most in this situation is how you might be able to get at what the ultimate goal is for the person you're counseling. What do you want God to do in this trial, if the person is in a trial? Why are you wanting to change? Those would be questions to get at what, as, what the person is ultimately aiming at. And then considering things like this, what do the counselee's thoughts, actions, words, etc. reveal about what he is worshiping? We're, we're supposed to be fruit inspectors from what they're saying, from the behaviors they're exhibiting, from... The things that they're going after we should be able to discern what they're worshiping and then you have some passages there that illustrate that principle or further explain it number six help the worshiper consider that God would be glorified by this change and why so sometimes people need help thinking through if you want to make this change let me help you refocus or sharpen your focus on why you should be changing by helping you brainstorm, maybe we brainstorm together reasons how or why God would be glorified by this change and not just the practical benefits it would bring to your life. And then finally, what attributes of God would be put on display if your counsel is heeded? So for example, if a, a parent having a rebellious team is being counseled by you and they're struggling to actually Stick with the rigorous standards that they've implemented in their home because they're just faint-hearted, maybe, uh, being tempted to cave at their uh, rebellious teens' stubbornness. Well, you can help them think if you stick to if you if you choose to obey God rather than giving in to the whims of your teenager who's stubborn then the benefits of that is God will be glorified by them seeing what complete allegiance to Christ looks like in your parenting, that you're going to choose, despite the hardship that they're causing in your home, to obey him instead of them. They see what genuine love and allegiance to Christ looks like. Uh, And if you faithfully implement discipline in your home, then Proverbs 3 and Hebrews 12 tell us that that is, a display of God's own love for his children. When parents faithfully live out loving, consistent discipline in the home, they are modeling the love and discipline of the Lord. And so those will be some ways that you could help a parent who's struggling with those things see the glory of God. Any questions before we move on? Does that make sense? All right. So the first condition that God's glory is the ultimate goal of change is when worshipful God honoring change occurs. The second condition when worshipful God honoring change occurs that must be present is number two, when faith is the primary means of change. When faith is the primary means of change. We worship God when we make faith, not other things, the primary means by which we change. For example, you have someone struggling with purity. Accountability software is great. I'm I'm a big fan of accountability software. Things like Covenant Eyes, uh, Forever Accountable, Ever Accountable. Those are great things. But if the person who is struggling with purity primarily looks to those to be the means by which they put off sin and put on righteousness, that doesn't honor God. Because... I don't necessarily need God to keep the uh, accountability software on my computer. I'm not seeking, that's not transforming my inner man, just having external things to keep me accountable. The primary means by which God has ordained that we pursue change is by believing him. Paul, in in, uh, Romans 3, after that section where he sort of culminates his arguments in chapters 1 and 2 of Romans. The pagan, without God's special revelation, is under God's wrath, and the Jew, with God's special revelation, and the very oracles of God, is under God's wrath. Because they're all sinners, and they all rebel against what has been revealed. Then he gets to chapter 3, and explains in verse 10, there is none righteous, Not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. He's indicting all of humanity. He gives specific ways that our sin is manifested. And then he caps off that discussion in verse 18 with this diagnosis to summarize everything he said. Why do people commit sin? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Fear of God is the primary reason we sin. And it's by faith that we actually put on the fear of God. We must believe what God has said about himself. Believe what God has said in scripture about really all other things biblical. And that's an an issue of faith. And so someone who looks to external things to change behaviorally and disregards or overlooks the fact that the reason you're struggling with sin or falling prey to a sin is because you lack a fear of God and you need to actually learn to believe what God has said is true by overlooking that God doesn't receive the glory. We looked at Romans 14, 23 last week. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So faith in an accountability app, continuing with our example, isn't what God is ultimately after. He is after faith in in himself. And so in that same example, that person struggling with purity needs to know God is omniscient. I need to believe what the Bible says about God's omniscience. Proverbs 15:3 and 15:11 tell me remind me that God sees all of my thoughts, all of my deeds, and if I actually believe that every moment of every day I would never struggle with purity because I would be more mindful, more aware of God's omniscience. If 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 I was aware of God's presence that God is nearer to me in the room than the computer, I would never struggle. With purity, because I would be operating, living out of a fear of God by believing what He has said. And so, in as we diagnose sin, we have to give faith the right place in in our sanctification, in all of our pursuits to change. This, by the way, isn't the same as as uh, as feeling. As feelings, right? Having your emotions in the right place or feeling like obeying is not the same as faith. We're talking about two different things there. Uh, just to give you an example, one preacher claims that the transformative agent, the primary transformative agent in the Christian life, is emotional joy. He says this speaking. And he's, just so you know how close the error is in the biblical counseling movement, this was a sermon given at the Christian Counseling Education Foundation's uh, annual conference in 2001, I believe. And then later published in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. And so there are, depending on what you're reading, the biblical counseling movement is still confused on this issue of, What actually transforms us, transforms us, the primary agent in transforming us into being more Christ-like. But this speaker said, referring to counseling, speaking is about joy. Preaching is about joy. Counseling is about joy. You go from the head to the mouth to the head to the heart, speaking of the counselor, head to mouth, and then to the person he's speaking, head to heart and produce joy, which transforms life. The error is subtle. He goes on to explain that the the way biblical change is accomplished is by targeting people's emotions so that they feel happy about truth and are happy about obedience. Now, that's really no different than teaching people to live by their emotions. I mean, that's no different than unbelievers living by their emotions. It's just, you're telling them to live by a different emotion. Uh, one that the Bible talks about. Contrary to, to that idea, I appreciate what Richard Sibb says in the Bruce Reed. He says, feeling and freeness of spirit are often reserved until duty is discharged. Reward follows work. And that's getting at the same principle Jesus communicated in John 13 after he washed the disciples feet he told them blessed are you if you do them blessed are you if you do them the blessing joy, happiness follows obeying God and truth be told what gets you to joy is believing God if I believe everything God said about his promises about what he's richly provided for me in Christ every moment of every day then joy would be a constant reality for me and that's not even uh, the emotional joy but a sustained gladness about what god is choosing to do at whatever stage of life he is uh also jerry rag and paul shirley i thought about just quoting the entirety of uh their book free to be holy but that would have been a lot of paper uh They say this, true worship only takes place when the spirit is engaged with with truth by faith. Faith is the priority of the Christian life because it allows us to enjoy the grace of God by embracing his truth and engaging in true worship. Faith is the first responsibility of the Christian life and the continuing imperative of Christian living. They fleshed this out at the end of uh, one of their chapters saying this, and you should have the quote for you you in in your uh, handout. When we actively pursue faith, that's not feeling, but actively pursue faith, the truth regulates our lives. By faith, we hold on to the certainty that God, who transcends our feelings, experiences, and circumstances, is the one who determines reality. His truth is true even when it doesn't feel right. His will is ultimate even when our experiences seem determinative. His hand is mighty even when our circumstances seem omnipotent. His character is holy even when our emotions betray us. His promises are final when despair seems permanent. And so the... Sanctification and holiness of life that we ought to be pursuing as Christians is accomplished primarily by faith. By faith and nothing else. Any questions about that? Yes, Ashley. Yeah, that's a great question. Is there any reason we should use accountability apps uh, if, if that's not by faith? Um, it, thank you for asking that question, because I should clarify. It's not that that cannot be done in faith or utilized in faith. It's that it's not a substitute for it. Yeah. So the person who uh, uses accountability software or gets rid of devices altogether That that actually could be an act of faith uh, if you are looking to God, his spirit, his word, uh, primarily, and knowing that you're imperfect and could falter, you have those things to inform other people who you want walking with you. That'd be a great use of an accountability app. Yeah, good question. Michaela? Um, why would you get rid of what specifically? Like what you were talking about I mean, technology sort of like like, um, Sure. How is that not? Um, so it should be. The question is uh, if somebody got rid of all of their devices, how could that be anything other than faith? Um, the qu- the, I think the, the short answer would be it depends on the reason they're doing it. I could get rid of. Just to give you an example, a married man could get rid of his devices because he fears his wife. That's not, that has nothing to do with, with God in that instance. I could be afraid that, I'm gonna, that this is going to ruin my marriage. I could be afraid that uh, this could put me at risk of losing my kids. And because I love my wife, my marriage, my kids so much and I don't want to lose them at any cost, I'll do whatever it takes. Well, unbelievers could do that. It doesn't take a Christian to fear losing your wife and kids, right? And so for, in order for it to be an act of faith, it must be rooted, I'll even say, in a, in a specific text of scripture, in a specific text of scripture in the sense that you have to be believing something that God has revealed, Right? God's glory, God hates divorce. I so desire that God be glorified that in my marriage that I'm going to get rid of whatever it takes to stay married. That, could be an act, that would be an act of faith. But there's a difference in doing it for that ultimate end versus something that should be secondary. Does that make sense? Yep. Right, any other questions? Good question. All right, in counseling, some ways to uh, make sure that this is present in whatever counseling situation you're dealing with. Uh, you You should consider what truth is the counseling failing to believe, call to mind, and or obey? What truth is the counseling failing to believe, call to mind, and or obey? If you can identify that, Then you can call them to believe, call to mind, and obey that truth. What does a particular sin reveal that the counselee must be believing instead of what's true? Right? So if the counselee is unable to self diagnose, then it's incumbent on us, as the people helping them, to be able to look at the situation, the person, the specific person in that situation the specific ways their sins are manifested, and then with our Bibles open, help them get at what's in their heart. And that's what Proverbs 20, verse 5 uh, gets at. The purposes in a man's heart are deep water. The purpose in a man's heart is deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. It takes wisdom to get at what's in the heart. Uh, number three, what needs to change in the counselee's thinking? And then you can call them like Philippians 4, eight does to believe, to think on those things. How has the constantly pursued change already? Why is this not working? What's missing? So if somebody uh, says, hey, I've tried reading my Bible. I've tried praying. I've tried. Well, you're telling me you're utilizing the means of grace, and yet if if you're still not experiencing progress in holiness, we need to revisit, because the means don't change. Nothing's wrong with the means. And the person who has faith actually believes that there's nothing wrong with the means, and there must be something wrong with the way you're utilizing them. And so, considering that can be helpful in counseling. And then lastly, what does the counselee understand, or excuse me, does the counselee understand the necessity of enduring faith? So I believed Yeah, but are you continuing to believe? You must endure in faith. You must actually choose to believe God on a moment-by-moment basis for as long as it takes. Are you believing something God hasn't promised? Why am I still struggling with this? I got saved, or I implemented this change, and I'm still having to fight this battle. In that case, the person would be obligating God to function in a way in sanctification that he hasn't actually promised. Right? God hasn't promised that you'll never experience that temptation again. And, and you're not fighting to never experience the temptation. You're, you're fighting to obey God, whether or not God brings the temptation. And so that's worth considering in counseling as well. Condition number three. Worshipful God-honoring change occurs when, number three, sin is the chief enemy of change. What we mean by this is that the person who is desiring change that can be considered worship, that person must make their own sin the primary opponent in their fight for holiness. If you primarily fight against something other than your own sin, like the sins of others or a change in circumstances, then you will fail to worship God because it's not the sin of others or unfavorable circumstances or anything else that stands in the way of God receiving glory from us. For example, parents, your child, your, ch- your children's disobedience doesn't stop you from glorifying God. Husbands, your wife's lack of submission has never been the reason you have failed to glorify God. And wives, your husband's poor leadership and lack of love has never been the reason you've responded in something other than the worship, worship of God. None of those things, not, n- neither of our sin, n- no person's sin, nor are our circumstances ever impediments to bringing God glory. Job learned uh, that same lesson the hard way. I love Job 32 to the end of the book some of my favorite chapters in scriptures, his wise counselor, we always remember he had three friends, but he actually had four. The wise friend is quiet until chapter 32. And he actually multiple times diagnoses Job's problem that he's been hearing in, in, his, uh, in his complaint for 30 chapters. Uh, so Elihu indicts Job's uh, and dice Job by my count four times at least In chapter 34 verses 7 to 9 In chapter 34 verses 36 to 37 Elihu points out what the problem with Job is So Job 34, 7 to 9 34 is 36 to 37 And then in chapter 35 verse 16 He and dice Job And points out what his problem is. And then in 36.21, he does the same thing again. And you'll notice his counsel is never, here's why you're suffering. And that's how his counsel differs from the other three unwise friends. Elihu never says why he's suffering. But he points out your job is to magnify God. God is greater than man. Who are you to answer to God? And you know his counsel is wise because at the end of the book, the commentary given is that God is angry with the three friends, so only the first three, and God picks up Elihu's monologue right where he ends and then speaks for himself about his own greatness. Uh, that, that could be uh, an equipping our class in itself, just looking at his counsel. Uh, Elihu is a, a doxological counselor, I like to think. But in chapter 36, verse 21, he says this is what Job's problem is. He tells Job, take care. Do not turn to iniquity, because this you have chosen rather than affliction. So Job made his affliction his primary problem rather than being primarily concerned with being holy at some point in the narrative. And so he didn't meet this third condition and make sin the chief enemy of change. You have some John Owen quotes from Mortification of Sin. Uh, I like what he says, that second quote, He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. Sin must be killed and we can't stop fighting until that's the case, which is after death for us. Also, this if we're going to think of sin as our chief problem, the chief impediment to God receiving glory from us, then this actually requires us to know how to sanctify ourselves. All right? That, that's a given. If this is our primary enemy, we need to know how to go to war against sin, which demands that we need to actually understand how to not just Communicate, hey, I'm struggling with this sin or recognize, for example, I'm an angry person. We need to actually know once a sin is made known to us, once we realize that a sin is present in our life, how do I come up with a plan to put off that sin for whatever righteousness God is calling me to in its place? We need to know how to sanctify ourselves. Uh, not just, hey, I'm praying about it, I recognize this sin and I'm confessing it. But we need to know what to do about it and how to actually change at the heart level. And we'll, we'll, like I mentioned, flesh that out a little bit more next week. How to put on faith, how to exercise faith, to put on righteousness at the heart level. In counseling, some ways to ensure that this condition is, is present in your counseling. To consider, number one, has the counseling misdiagnosed their problem? Have they attributed their dishonoring thoughts, deeds, etc., to something other than sin? A mental illness, a psychological label, medication, or the lack thereof, or their body's biological makeup, or chemistry, other people, circumstances. We could subtly attribute our disobedience to those things. But at the end of the day, those things are not causing sin. It's always a, a lack of faith in us. Number two, has the counselee rightly identified the sin in their life? Is the counselee calling the sin what God calls it? Are they using biblical language? Would be a, a helpful way to to see what how they're thinking about sin. Is the counselee practicing spiritual cardiology, I'm calling it? Are they able to assess and diagnose their own heart in order to draw out their deepest desires, motives, pursuits, affections, longings, intentions, thoughts, etc.? Someone should, a a mature believer can do that, open the word of God, or look at their own heart, see sin in their own heart, and then open the word of God and say, here's how I'm going to cure this ill that I see in my heart. And as wise counselors, we've got to be able to help people get there. Here, let me help you understand your heart, the problems deeper than you may think it is. And then once I see those things, here's how you put those off and put on what God's calling you to be and do. And then that last question, is the counselor willing to choose affliction over iniquity? Do they hate sin more than suffering? I use the example Last week or a couple weeks ago uh, of a wife who I was counseling, who was unwilling to do that. If suffering meant if pleasing God meant suffering for her, she was unwilling to follow Christ. And so clearly that was an impediment in her honoring God, not being willing to suffer for the sake of God's glory. Any questions about that before we get our last one? That's right. so I'm just a way, Praise God, man. Yeah. That's right. I mean, we've got to be uh, equipped to do that well. Yeah. Right? Identify sin and kill it. Last one, last condition. Number four: Worshipful, God honoring change occurs when the heart is the principal object of change. And this we've kind of hit on already in what we've discussed. But the heart must be the principal object of change. It must be the target the primary target, where you primarily seek change to occur. Uh, We live in a day when popular evangelicalism has embraced the unbiblical idea that people don't and can't really change. This idea that, hey, we're all broken, right? The world's broken, I'm broken, you're broken, and so I'm no better practically, I'm no more holy than you. It's, It's all good. That is not the case. We can actually change. Change is a, not only a tangible uh, possibility, but we're called to it, aren't we? We are called to actually change. And you have the idea, like many of you know, popular Christian blogs will paint the picture that God's grace doesn't actually change you practically. You'll always be struggling with the same sins. You'll always sin in the same ways today or, you know, in the future as you do today. But God, it, it's all about God's grace. Jesus died, so it's okay if you fail. That is not the case. Uh, one one popular Christian author who's now a disgraced pastor said, because Jesus succeeded for me, I was free to fail. No, that's not a, a good understanding uh, of and I mean, you, re- you see this guy's life and it's, it's clear why he was saying that. Uh, a defiled conscience will make you make amends with sin. That is not okay. Uh, we can actually change on the heart level. I appreciate what Thomas Watson says in the doctrine of repentance. He says, the heart is the primum vivens, the first thing that lives that is in conversion. And it must be the primum vertens, the first thing that turns. In religion, the heart is all. We can actually change on a heart level. The scriptures, according to James 1.18 and 1 Peter 123, was powerful to change us in conversion on the heart level, right? Did this scripture not come to us, come to you? Powerfully when someone preached the gospel to you and you believed and your heart was radically changed You found yourself with new thoughts new desires. You started seeing the world differently You started being grieved by sin and conversion Well, if god's word is powerful to accomplish that in conversion in salvation Then it's the same. It's the same word. And so it's the same power functioning in sanctification God's word is powerful to change us at the heart level Not only in salvation, but also in sanctification. And this is the very thing that Paul told the Romans in Romans 6. You became obedient from the heart. On a heart level where nobody else could see, you started obeying God. And so before your obedience was ever manifested externally in ways that were pleasing to other people, you were first pleasing to God at a heart level. You experienced convictions and develop a new principle by which you begin to care what God thought there on the heart level. And so it is possible to change at the heart level. And that's the, the kind of change that we have to primarily pursue as we seek to, to put off or put on holiness. A sincere sanctification, sanctification that can be called by God sincere, changes there. At the heart level, and that's what we have to be a, be after primarily—not just a change of behavior, but actual heart, deep-seated, permanent, comprehensive change there. In counseling, some things to consider: the counseling must—the counselor, as we've already said, must practice spiritual cardiology. That is, he must practice Proverbs twenty, verse five, and draw out what is happening in the counselee's heart by carefully discerning the fruit. That's the words, actions, circumstances that surround the counselee's life. And you have to do that with God's wisdom, that is his word. Does the counselee believe what is true? Heart-level change, or believe that true heart-level change is even possible. Sometimes Christians can fall into despair and, and, and not believe that I'm ever going to change and fight this sin effectively. And so we might need to instill hope in the Council and remind them that this is not, God has not only made this possible for you to change, but he desires it for you. As 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What in the heart needs to change, needs to be considered by us. So what is it? The thoughts, the desires, affections, commitments or allegiances, strength of the will, convictions. That's all heart level stuff. And then lastly, does the counseling need admonishment, encouragement, or help to change? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul prescribes different remedies for different people. The unruly need admonishment, the faint-hearted need encouragement, the weak need help. And so we can discern as wise counselors how to help that specific person. Any questions? Michaela. yeah yeah good question the question is if if the motives aren't pure if the motives aren't right uh do you still give them action plans uh, yeah. actionable items yeah. tasks um the The answer to that is is yes. I'd be interested in a specific situation, but the general answer without knowing the details of your specific situation that you're counseling in is yes. Yeah. And we don't wait for our, our hearts to feel like it or, you know, get where we want them in total before we just do what's right. Because God's not only calling us to have our hearts aligned with what he says is true, but also our behaviors. So it's not only the heart, but also the hands, if you will. So, yes, do this and do them with the right motive. Don't wait either way right? Don't wait. Do what's right. Do what God says to do. Yes, John? Great question Uh, The question is Everybody's different Scripture doesn't change But everybody's heart Come The different people Different hearts come into play in counseling And so how much time do you spend Seeking to understand That person's uh, Uniqueness If you will Uh, History, unique history, unique preferences Unique season of life, all of those things versus uh, bringing scripture and, and what scripture prescribes in the play. I don't think that there's a one clear-cut, you know, 15 minutes or two hours here, two sessions here, and then move on to... Um, I think that you, you spend enough time until you, you can discern the problem and then the solution from God's Word. And that might vary uh, for, for different people. If somebody's got a, a long history um traumatic situations those types of things that it would be wise probably to spend more time seeking to understand that versus versus maybe a friend who I've known for a long time and I might know not know all the details but I know his current season of life well enough to know what he should be doing and so it just takes discernment to to figure that out and once you once you can discern the problem then then bring scripture to bear on the, on a solution, so that's a, that's the short answer. No. Okay, all right. It is twelve oh two. Sure, you're all hungry. Uh, thank you for sticking around. You are dismissed.